0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure and it's a great honor to welcome Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez back to the show. We invited him to the show back in June as we discussed his books, One Man Alone, An Investigation of Nutrition, Cancer, and William Donald Kelly, and The Trophoblast and the Origins of Cancer about his work with pancreatic enzymes and his many, many years of investigating nutritional approaches to cancer and other degenerative diseases. He's been in practice in New York since 1987 with Dr. Linda Isaacs. In his office, he uses individualized aggressive nutritional protocols to work with many types of cancer, with other illnesses such as allergies, autoimmune disorders, and chronic fatigue, Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to pay very close attention. I also want you to go back and listen to our first interview. Welcome, Dr. Nick Gonzalez, back to its rainmaking time. Good morning and good afternoon in New York.
1: Great to be with you, and thanks so much for the compliments, and thanks for having me back on. I always like to talk about what we're doing.
0: When we spoke back in June of this year, I did ask you about Steve Jobs. You shared a little bit about how Steve Jobs knew about you, And you talked about some of his predilection mentally, what happens in the medical community when a celebrity gets ill. I want you to restate some of that. And I also want you to talk about some of the details that the public does not know about the fact that he had treatment that is not consistent with curing cancer, like his liver transplant.
1: Yeah, happy to do all that. Celebrities are always in danger. They don't realize that. Their their money, their fame, their notoriety puts them in danger. How so? Because esteemed conventional doctors at major institutions are are almost like predators with celebrity patients. So, for example, Michael Landon, who did consult with me once for half an hour and I never heard from him again, was really sucked into mainstream very quickly and got an experimental chemo protocol. He was dead within three months. I mean, I have pancreatic cancer patients with liver metastasis who've been with me 15 years. He was gone in three months. And after he died, his widow, you know, his estate was estimated at three hundred and sixty million dollars. A very successful Hollywood actor, his wife, I know through his uh, publicist, who remains to this day, Harry Flynn, a good friend of mine, gave uh, the the doctor in Cedar Sinai thirty eight million dollars, and he was dead within three months, but still was rewarded. It, it, celebrities just think that the best of the best, the smartest of the smartest, are at these major institutions like Cedar Sinai or Sloan Kettering or Stanford, which is where uh, Jobs was treated. And that these are these remarkable, you know, like Aerosmith from the Sinclair Lewis novel. He's a dedicated scientists working late into the night trying to cure their cancer. And they actually buy into that. And Steve Jobs was no different. Now, Mr. Jobs, who obviously a very smart man, a guy's, you know, multi billionaire and made inventions that we all use and love and hold dear to our hearts. Um, he, was, he, he did think outside the box and he did do alternatives, not my therapy. We did talk once. He never was my patient. His acupuncturist wanted him to come see me, but he never did. We spoke at length. He was very gracious, never heard from him again. But I know he was doing some alternatives. I think he did macrobiotics. That's what I've heard. I know that Dean Ornish was a good friend of his, and Ornish is big into the low-fat uh, vegetarian type thing. I know, I know he did some of that. But ultimately, he went the conventional route and had a uh, Whipple. Now, one of the things that uh, I read constantly, in fact, I heard there was a panel on Fox, the Fox channel where they were talking about how crazy it was that he went and did alternatives. I, I just don't understand that. It's almost like this irrationality that somehow, conven- you know, the orthodox physicians have all the answers. If they had all the answers, the, the five-year survival rate in their world for pancreatic cancer wouldn't be 2% or 3%. It would be, you know, 99%. But somehow, even though they fail the great majority of times with patients with pancreatic cancer, they're still considered the knowledgeable experts. You know, to me, an expert is someone who knows how to do something right. If you have a car and it breaks down, you bring it to your, to your mechanic, and if the mechanic said, well, I only can get uh, 2% of these cars turned around, you'd get your car out of there so fast. But somehow with medicine, it's different. If you go to Stanford or Sloan Kettering or Johns Hopkins and they say, well, we can only help about 2 to 3% of the people with your disease, it's like they roll over and bow down and say, wow, I'm so glad to be in the hands of the expert. And that's where I've used the phrase that it's kind of – it's not rational. It's, mo- it's almost like a religious phenomenon where it has nothing to do with science or data or objective evaluation of, those, of the facts but rather this almost fanatical religious belief that people at powerful institutions must have the answer, even when they clearly obviously don't. Now, Steve Jobs did have what's considered the less aggressive form of pancreatic cancer. There are two basic forms of form that involves the production of pancreatic enzymes. Ninety-five percent of pancreatic cancers involve the enzyme-producing cells, and that's the really deadly form where the average survival is three to six months even today. Not in my office, but in the conventional world, that's what it is. He had the islet cell cancer, which affects the endocrine-secreting cells of the pancreas. The pancreas has two kinds of cells, those that produce the enzymes that help with digestion and those that produce the hormones like insulin. And the ones that occur in the hormone-producing cells, the islet cells, tend to be less aggressive. Now, it's all relative. In the Sloan-Kettering series, the average survival for islet cell cancer was about three to four years, which is certainly far better than with the the exocrine or the enzyme-producing type cancer. But it's still not some kind of simple cakewalk where 20 years later most people are alive. I mean, within four years, 50% are dead. Jobs lived seven years, and people are criticizing him for doing some alternative stuff. Now, I don't know what he did, so I can't vouch for it, but how do we know that the alternatives didn't give him seven years of life, and had he not, had he not done that, he would have been dead in four years, which is the average statistical, scientific, objective, rational data.
0: I saw an interview with Walter Isaacson who wrote the last book about Steve Jobs that just came out this week in an interview on television and one of the things he said which I thought was so interesting was basically that Jobs had this opportunity when he was first diagnosed to take the traditional route and let them get the cancer out of there through traditional means but that he delayed his treatment nine months. And as a result, it metastasized. I thought it was a very interesting statement because nobody gave the details of what exactly he did, how far along it was like that. So we know that chemotherapy and radiation has not been very successful for most people. What do you have to say about that and what did he actually do and why did he have a liver transplant?
1: The sequence of events as I put together and from what he he told me is that he was diagnosed with what appeared to be local pancreatic cancer but, you know, having dealt with pancreatic cancer and studied it for 30 years and treated it for 24 years, the world is filled with pancreatic, or I should say the earth is filled with patients with pancreatic cancer who told it was localized and underwent the Whipple procedure and had it out and then were dead six months later. Uh, we get those calls every day from patients who had the Whipple, which is, that's a very aggressive treatment where they take out 50 to 70 percent of the pancreas, part of the stomach, part of the small intestine, they reconnect all the anatomy. It's a very aggressive procedure. When it was developed back in the 30s and 40s, the mortality rate during surgery, 30 to 40, 50 percent of people would die during surgery, but they had no treatment for pancreatic cancer, so they were willing to risk it. And it's only done for localized disease. So if Isaacson said that, that would be a misstatement because when he did have the surgery some eight or nine months later, it was still localized, and they gave him a whip. The first thing that happened is he had a whipple procedure. So while he was doing his alternatives, whatever they may have done, apparently the tumor did progress, but it was still considered local. Uh, and then he underwent the whipple procedure, which is only done for, pan- for pancreatic cancer if it's limited to the pancreas. At some time later, it clearly recurred in his liver, and that's when he went to Memphis and had a liver transplant, which, I don't know, two hundred and fifty five hundred thousand dollars 500000 those things can cost which is just a t- completely experimental-type treatment, and it's not something that um, they do it for primary liver cancer, and in that case it can be curative, but not with metastatic pancreatic cancer. It's never curative for that because if it's spread into the liver, you assume it's going to spread somewhere else, even if you can't see it on the scans.
0: Then why would they do it?
1: Why would the doctors do it?
0: Yeah, why would they experiment on somebody?
1: Well, he was, you know, he could pay the bill first, and they. I mean, I'm sure that there was a rationalization that this is the only thing that could help him, do uh, you I, agree I, I, with I, that? No, I don't agree with it at all. I think it's a first of all, when you do a liver transplant, then you have to be on immunosuppressive drugs, which have been shown to stimulate cancer growth. You're suppressing the immune system, it's the last thing a cancer patient like like him would need. In fact, for all the criticism I, mean, I hear this over and every, every time I turn on TV or listen to the on the internet or turn, listen to the radio and talk about Jobs, if he hadn't, if he had done surgery right away, he would have been cured. Who knows that? I mean, who suddenly? journalists are godlike, and they know what would have happened had he How do you know that he wouldn't have died on the table? Who, where's, the, where's the scientific evidence that had he done it then, he wouldn't have done worse? How do we know that the fact he did alternatives while well, it didn't cure him may have helped him, may have made him stronger so he could withstand the surgery better? And had he done it right away, that's such a debilitating procedure. Even today, 10 to 15% of patients die on the table during the procedure. I had a patient's family call me recently in tears. Not my patient; Uh, they were interested. He was interested in becoming my patient. Went off and got a Whipple and died on the table um, here at a major New York Center uh, cancer center, which will remain unnamed. True story. So, how do we know that the alternatives that he did didn't so strengthen his body that when he finally did have the Whipple, that he was able to survive nicely, and maybe that helped him. Maybe that's why he lived seven years. It certainly isn't the surgery because the average survival with surgery is four years, and he lasted seven years. So he did far better than you would expect, far better than the conventional doctor's own statistics show, and here they're criticizing him. Well, why did he live seven years? That's interesting, because 50% of people are dead within three or four years with that islet cell. So you know they're making assumptions that are unscientific, irrational, and emotional based on their biases and prejudices, even though, even though as they speak, they're trying to project themselves as being an objective and scientist. They're really projecting their own biases that alternatives can't work, therefore he committed suicide. By not getting the surgery sooner. Where's the proof? Where's the evidence? We would have to ask God that. Well, if he had gotten surgery sooner, would he have done better? There's no evidence. that. In fact, he did extraordinarily well.
0: I don't want to gloss over the part about his liver transplant. You said in a liver transplant, they then have to give him a certain type of drugs that stimulate cancer. Say what they are again.
1: Well, so I think drugs like cyclosporine. See, the problem with a liver transplant is you're getting somebody else's liver, and unless you have an identical twin, it's not going to be an exact genetic match, and the body will reject it. That's the problem with organ transplantation. That's why there's such an interest in stem cells. You get your own stem cells to regrow organs because you won't reject those. But whenever you have a transplant, you're taking somebody else's tissue, and your body's going to instinctively want to reject it, and patients have to stay on immune suppressants forever because as soon as you go off them, your own immune system is going to attack it because it recognizes that transplanted organ, be it a heart or liver or kidney, is a foreign organ. So you have to suppress your own immune system. These drugs have, and I'm trained as a classical immunologist, I was trained to do bone marrow transplant, I know all about this stuff. Those drugs have been shown to produce cancer. And a certain percentage, and it isn't significant, will develop cancer as a result of the immunosuppression that's necessary when you have an organ transplant. So he was playing with fire. They, they criticized the alternative stuff he did. I would be far more critical of the fact that he had a liver transplant. I, I never would, if I were a physician, never would have suggested that. Because of not only does it not work in his kind of situation, but the immunosuppressive drugs are almost guaranteed to make his situation more dire.
0: If what you're saying is accurate, then... It's criminal what was done. It's outrageous. I don't get it. I don't get it.
1: Well, um, conventional doctors can do pretty much of anything, and they have the protection of the law, so legally it wouldn't be considered criminal. It would be considered, again, the Martin Arrowsmith thing of these heroic doctors trying desperately to keep this wonderful man alive for the benefit of humanity. But in reality, it was kind of a... Uh, a feckless and reckless type of thing to do with metastatic pancreatic cancer to take out somebody's liver just because, you know, he could afford paying for it. Uh, um, I'm sure his insurance didn't pay for it. So it's just, it's just not something that, what I would ever recommend. In fact, it didn't work for all his criticism. You know, they're focusing on the alternatives because they're, they're doing exactly what they did with Michael Landon. You know, Michael Landon wasn't my patient, but he did know about Gerson, was doing coffee enemas and carrot juice. So at the press conference after he died, his oncologist is saying, well, he shouldn't have done all that alternative. Like, yeah, he shouldn't have drunk carrot juice. Like, that's going to make him worse. Uh, but doing experimental chemo, that's a good thing. So it's almost like they're trying to draw focus away from the fact that he had a liver transplant that didn't do anything. and should never have been done and required he be on immunosuppressive medications that stimulate cancer growth. Not a smart thing to do when you're dealing with a patient.
0: Don't you think this is a function of a lack of disclosure? I don't believe if he was told what you just said to us, he would have never elected to do that.
1: Well, he he was an independent thinker. He might have done it anyway, and I, I can't speak for him what he would have done. Um, I know he spoke to me but didn't do my therapy, um, even though his acupuncturist wanted him to do that. I think if he, had, if he had made a rational decision, he never would have done it. But you see, he didn't. He didn't think he had any options, and I'm sure people around him, like stand Stanford doctors, from what I understand, he was putting passing everything through his Stanford doctors once he was under their care, and I'm sure he would have mentioned me, and they would have said, oh, you know, that's just a lot of fraud, quackery, et cetera, so he never even considered coming to see me, which is sad because we have patients with his exact diagnosis with metastases in the liver. have done extremely well. I have one patient I mentioned to you earlier before we went on the air, 16 years out now, and all his tumors are gone, only treated by me, and he's being interviewed now for some documentary, so... Uh, he didn't think he had any other options, so it was a desperate Hail Mary play. It, it, it defies rationality to me. It defies common sense. It also defies the science. We keep hearing about alternatives are not scientific. This is not scientific to have done that. In fact, it didn't work, and he died. And I guarantee that the immunosuppressant drugs he was on did not help. They did not help the situation at all.
0: I want to talk also about the fact that even for somebody with huge amount of money, huge amount of power, huge amount of public notoriety, can feel that they have no choice, that there are no options. That represents to me, Dr. Gonzalez, the weight of the medical orthodoxy.
1: As I've said, and you and I were discussing this also, medicine is the last reigning religion in America. No one takes politicians or religious leaders seriously. The The, the toughest Hardest journalists wouldn't think twice about uh, dismissing anything a politician or a religious leader would say. When it comes to medicine, they all bow down and roll over. If it comes from Sloan Kettering, if it comes from Stanford or Johns Hopkins, it's coming from these brilliant guys, you know, who wear the white coats and speak their special language and have their special instruments, and there's, no one can understand what they're talking about. And these are the smart kids from junior high school that no one understood, and they have this kind of awe because, you know, journalists Couldn't pass chemistry, and here you go, guys that got through chemistry in medical school. So there's almost this reverential awe about conventional orthodox physicians, and they're an extraordinarily powerful profession. And one of the, again, they've managed to put themselves in the position of a reigning religion, where no one questions them. It's it's oracles from God and oracles from the oracles from the prophet, and whatever they say has to be believed, even when it defies common sense. For example, I, I've never heard any journalist discussing Steve Jobs attack the fact that he had a liver transplant. They just gloss over. Well, he had a liver transplant, and then he died. Why did he do that? Why did he allow himself to do that when there's no evidence it would work? When he had to go on immunosuppressive drugs that would only stimulate his cancer to spread more rapidly, why would he put himself through that? Well, who talked him into doing that? That's what I'd like to know. I don't know the name of the doctor that did the, the surgery. Why doesn't he come forward? Why doesn't he defend what he did instead of a, this red herring of attacking the fact that you know he ate whole grains and, and did carriages? Why did he do it? Why why was it allowed? Why was it encouraged? Why did they take his money? It didn't work. That's the, that's the real problem.
0: Absolutely. Talk a little bit about pancreatic enzymes and how cell membranes in cancer are different than regular cell membranes in our bodies without cancer. Just a little context here.
1: Well, Dr. Beard, who was the eminent English uh, researcher who taught at the University of Edinburgh, and did his research there, he was the first person 100 years ago, suggested that pancreatic enzymes have an anti-cancer effect and yet would not affect normal tissue. And in his book, The Enzyme Treatment of Cancer, published in 1911, he had a whole chapter on why he thought cancer cells were vulnerable to the effect of enzymes, but normal cells were not. And he thought at that time, and this is 1911 when he published that book, that cancer cells have the opposite charge in terms of electromagnetism than do normal cells, and of course... His colleagues thought he was insane. They didn't, no one thought that cells were electrical. Of course, we now assume and we know that cells are electric, and they work through ele- electrical as well as chemical reactions. And every cell does have a charge, and the, cell of, the normal cell has an opposite charge than that of cancer cells. And Beard thought that the charge on cancer cells would attract the pancreatic enzymes, whereas the charge on normal cells would repulse them, like opposite poles of a magnet would tend to be attracted. So they would be attracted to the cancer cells, and they would digest proteins on the cell membrane. Now, cells, are not, cells cell membranes are not just globs of uh, fat. They, they do have a lipid layer, but they're loaded with proteins that are necessary for cell life. These proteins form receptors that allow cells to communicate with each other. They form pores that go right through the cell membrane that allow nutrients to get in and the waste materials to get out. That's how the cells live. And these proteins, Beard believed, he didn't know the details of the molecular biology 100 years ago, but he suspected that the enzymes would just chew up these proteins. And should that be the case, the cell would die. In fact, no cell, whether it's normal or cancer, can survive if the proteins on its surface, these receptors and pores, are destroyed. And Beard believed that the, neg- the, the charge on the cancer cell was the opposite of the enzymes, would attract the enzymes, the enzymes would chew up these proteins on the membrane, and the cell would die, and that's what we believe happens. We haven't had the finances to do the intricate molecular biology that would be necessary to prove that, but we suspect that's what happens. It's a question of the enzymes dissolving. These are proteolytic protein-digesting enzymes. We believe they just dissolve the proteins on the surface of cancer. So I can take 1,000 capsules. They don't affect my normal tissue. I might get a stomachache, but they're not going to dissolve away my body. Tumors, they just melt. They just attack it and dissolve it. Just as Beard said 100 years ago, we see that routinely.
0: How come there's only one of you?
1: Well, there's two. I got a colleague in my office. All
0: right, you and your colleague, though. Two
1: out of five. What is it, six billion people on Earth? Um. I, I always say, never underestimate the ability of the human mind to be repulsed by the truth. The human mind has some kind of instinctive hatred of truth it just it, it prefers dishonesty you know, biblically speaking, the human mind prefers dishonesty and non truth far more i mean the, the hardest journalist will accept anything that comes out of sloan Kettering because they, they just want to they want to believe that it has nothing to do with factor it has to do with emotion and and the ult, ultimate perversity of the human mind that just has absolutely unattraction to the truth. I mean Beer I, I didn't invent this it's not like I'm some kind of ego maniac. I mean Beer put this all into his book, it was a 280 page book, 1911. The answer to cancer is in that book. When I was a medical student and read that it blew my mind. Now why was I attracted to it and no one else was? I don't know. Um, I'm just maybe I'm dumber than than most so I am not not attracted by you know that fancy stuff. I don't I care less. I just care what the truth is. Um, most humans could care less about the truth, they're just not interested, it doesn't mean anything to them, there's no emotional tie to it, it's not as attractive often, it's too weird, too strange, doesn't fit the convention. Most people are more interested in what's conventional rather than what's true. The convention is comfortable. It's about being comfortable. Um, Truth is often outside our design limits, it's often not outside our conventional beliefs, and therefore it makes us uncomfortable. So people would rather believe something that's not true because it's comfortable and familiar than believe a truth that's different from what, we're, what we expect or what we're used to. I think that's really what it is. I mean, it's in Beard's book. It's right there. And I look, took one look at it. I said, this guy was brilliant. This sounds like he's got an answer to cancer. Started looking into, you know, Kelly, who had revived Beard's work during the 60s and 70s, started looking through his work and found that with enzymes uh, 60 years later, he was this guy that was reversing cancer just as Beard said one could. And then when Kelly kind of went off the deep end in 1987, we started treating patients, Dr. Isaacs and I, and we saw tumors disappear. Not everybody gets well, of course. We see a lot of really advanced patients. But I've never seen anything that works as well as the enzymes. If I did, I quit doing what I do in two minutes and go do that. But I've never seen anything that works as well. It's so obvious that it works.
0: And yet it's not just for pancreatic cancer. It's for many types of cancer.
1: Yeah, it works for any, any kind of cancer from leukemia to brain cancer to toenail cancer. It, it's an equal opportunity tumor destroyer. For some reason, again, I don't know why, other than the perversity of the human mind. There's this misconception that it only works for pancreatic cancer. I don't know why, just because we use pancreatic enzyme. They kill any kind of cancer cell, as Beard said 100 years ago, as Kelly showed 40 years ago, and as we see in our own office, they'll kill any kind of cancer cell. And all cancer cells really are similar. There's this again misconception in the oncology world as well in the lay world that there are all these different hundreds different, hundred different kinds of cancer. Well, Beard said they're really basically all the same and that they all have the, the, the opposite charge of the enzymes and the opposite charge of uh, normal cells, and those enzymes will go in and chew them up, whether it's leukemia, brain cancer, or toenail cancer. So they'll kill any cancer. So it's
0: not limited to the pancreas. That's the point.
1: Yeah, we treat any kind of cancer and have treated any kind of cancer. And some of our greatest successes, we're doing a book of 100 cases right now because we realize we can't depend on the conventional medical world to embrace us and love us. So we're just putting together our own cases and let challenge anyone to match it. We have a whole series, of like twenty cases that will be breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer. Patients have been with us twenty four years. I had a patient last week. She was just actually it was this week it was Monday. It's already Friday. It was this past Monday? She was one of my first patients. Started with me December sixth, nineteen eighty seven. She had developed metastatic breast cancer into the bone while receiving aggressive chemo she had inflammatory breast cancer initially with eighteen positive lymph nodes out of eighteen huge tumor it had to radiate the tumor just to shrink it so they could operate on it Then said, you got the worst kind of cancer and this is going to really be aggressive we're going to put you on chemo until you die started giving her chemo in 1985 1987 after two years of constant chemo she developed metastases despite the chemo into her bones and they said and that's it you're going to die started with us and That's before I was well-known and had written books and all that stuff. She came, believed in what we did, did the program, and she was in Monday. looks great. Years ago, her tumors were all gone. She's 24 in December. It'll be 24 years out. And she's a breast cancer patient with inflammatory breast cancer into the bone. So we do treat all kinds of cancers and some of our really rewarding successes have been non-pancreatic cancer Though we're known for pancreatic
0: cancer. I interviewed someone yesterday, Dr. Thomas, who wrote about the secrets of the lymphatic system, who had cancer of the lymphatic system 28 years ago. She went in, they put her on aggressive chemo and radiation. She was so violently sick and they told her that in three weeks she was going to die 28 years later and she's well. And she has her own story about how she's well. Then I have another friend who I told you about back in June that has a tumor behind her nose, went for intense radiation and chemo for a month and a half. They almost killed her doing it. She was going in for hyperbaric oxygen treatments. I got her set up with about 30 here. She went in for five. She was starting to feel better. She goes back. She tells the oncologist at the county that she's having oxygen treatments, which have helped a lot of people who are getting chemo because you get so sick from the chemo and radiation. And he says to her, cancer really grows in oxygen. So we don't really know what you have. And she stopped the treatments. And he said to her, I really want to go in and operate. And I'm scared if we don't operate, you're going to die. So I have this conversation with her, and I said, why do you believe this? Why are you allowing them to give you a death sentence? They don't cure cancer. How are you allowing this person to tell you when you're going to die? And if they don't get to cut, you're going to die. This drives me crazy because this is home now. This is to friends. It's so upsetting to me.
1: Well, the conventional medicine people, again, it's a... People have a fanatic religious belief in them. Whether it's rational or not, it isn't rational. And whether it's objective or not, it's not objective. They believe in it. And these are the authorities, and they still they possess an enormous amount of authority. And people hold conventional physicians in awe. And that's one of the problems with alternatives. People do not hold alternative physicians in awe. So they readily dismiss it because they think, well, if it any good, it would be at Sloan and Stanford, etc.
0: Yeah. And she said to me, I don't have a choice. I don't have choices. I said, yes, you do. You need to go to people who have been treating people who are living years after they've been given the death sentence. You need to seek those people out.
1: Well, see, in her case, though, the only thing I would disagree with you here, she probably is more comfortable um, under the care of a conventional physician. We have people that Call our office and we can tell right away that they're being pushed there by friends or family members and they really don't believe in alternatives. And these, are, there are people who would be happier dying at Sloan Kettering than getting well with us. It's just emotionally it's too difficult for them. It's outside again going back to the comfort zone. Yeah. Conventional medicine, we're all brought up thinking that these are the, these are those brilliant scientists working late at night, sacrificing their personal life for the benefit of science. I mean, in fact, it's all mythology, and that's not really the case. It doesn't matter, but that's what people believe. And they invest an enormous amount of faith in these people. That's undeserved. So, but patients like that often would feel more comfortable not doing well in the hands of a powerful authoritarian scientist from a major institution than going to see some alternative. I
0: think you're right about that. I couldn't believe she says to me, I don't have a choice.
1: In her mind, she doesn't. And I would just love her, pray for her, and just let her go and let her do what she wants.
0: I mean, I am. I just think about it, and I think of the gravitational hold that the medical orthodoxy has in traditional medicine. It's profound, and so many people die. Why did Farrah Fawcett die?
1: She, you know, I... I Never knew her or spoke to her. She's a, she was a good friend of Suzanne Summers who's a, a friend of mine, you know, who wrote the book on right. knockout. And Suzanne was going nuts because Farrah went from one conventional, eminent uh, conventional physician to the next. She went to Germany, but even there it was, mo- it was conventional, it was radiation, chemo, that kind of thing. And she just couldn't let go of it. I mean, Michael Landon's another great case. You know, He was so awed by these these white-coated you know, demigods from Cedar Sinai—that he, he was going to come see me—he re- that's what he wanted to do, and he was never never was unhappy with his choice. Even as he lay dying, he, you know, he went to the best of the best, and he was happy that he did that. He knew he did the best he could do for him. It was the best. He was—he would never have been comfortable on my feet treatment, doing something that the orthodox people condemn and don't condone. He would never have been happy with that. He needed to be in the hands of orthodoxy. And a lot of people do. Again, it's familiar. It's secure. It's what we trust, even if it doesn't work. And people just are not able to go beyond and think rationally that this is not going to work. Michael Landon, worth $360, $380 million, he couldn't say to himself, he couldn't hire a research assistant and say this isn't going to work. No one's ever been cured with stage 4 uh, pancreatic cancer with chemo. It's not going to work for you. You're going to die probably quickly, and he did die quickly. It's not, it's not a rational decision. It's a question of comfort. He, he was more comfortable there not doing well than coming to see me and possibly getting well.
0: I just did an interview with Bruce Lipton on the biology of belief. And it is stunning how the power of belief impacts our ability to see and to receive new knowledge. I really think what you said is very astute on a number of levels. You know, my friend believes in this doctor and in this treatment at the highest level, even if she's going to die, she's going to put herself under the direction of these authorities.
1: Even if it doesn't work, she'll be happier there than getting well uh, under the care of somebody who's alternative and not accepted. And the family will criticize her for her choice, and her friends will criticize her. And they'll say, why aren't you? We get that all the time with our patients. I, I tell my patients, once they decide to become my patient, to get rid of anybody who's negative. Not that I'm a cult leader, and you have to. My, no,
0: I understand.
1: It's for their benefit because having that kind of negative input, or you should be at Sloan Kettering. You, know, you know, it's it's just irrational, and it doesn't help, and it creates anxiety and fear and all of that. The fact is, for these patients, for the most patients I see, Sloan Kettering can help them. Many of them come out of Sloan Kettering having failed. So, but doesn't matter. Even though, the, even if they've been to these places and failed, uh, the family and the friends and the country and the society and our culture says, go back to the best. Sloan Kettering, MD, Anderson, Stanford. And celebrities particularly, we started this conversation talking about celebrities, they're particularly vulnerable to that because they get special treatment. Um, I guarantee that Steve Jobs wasn't going in through the front door with the herds of patients going to Stanford, that his limousine brought him to the special door for celebrities. So they get special treatment. You know, One of the former, my mentor when I was a medical student, you know, was the president of Sloan Kettering, and he used to tell me stories about other presidents of Sloan Kettering. That as soon as a celebrity would come to them, he would take this, the president would take them to lunch and wine and dine them because they saw donations. Even if the patient dies, they saw donations. As it happened with Michael Lanton. I mean, I, do, I have not had it verified, but his press agent's a good friend. He said his widow gave Cedar Sinai thirty eight million dollars after he died. So that even when they die, they're grateful. In, in fact. When I I went to Cornell, which is associated with Sloan Kettering, worked under the president of Sloan Kettering there. And when I was doing my medical rotation on the floors of Memorial Hospital, I noticed that every room had a plaque next to it in honor of and memory of. And the residents used to laugh. They said, "Well, these are the wealthy." And the plaque, the size of the plaque, depended on how much money you gave. And some of these plaques were pretty big. And every room, every room in Memorial Hospital has a plaque next to it, and it's all in memory of. They're all dead people, and the, the residents used to call it the Grateful Dead. They're all dead, <laughs> and the families are so great. The families were, even though the person's dead, which would say, well, it didn't work, you know, well, why are we so grateful? They're so grateful that they went to the best, and they know they did the best for, you know, Susie or Sammy or Tommy or whatever, for the mother, the father, the son. They went to the best of the best, these demigod geniuses, the best of the best in, in this extraordinary profession of medical research. The fact that the the guy died or the woman died doesn't mean it doesn't even register, that's how Sloan Kettering survives. It's the most endowed hospital in a, in the world, and a lot of the donations come from dead people. You know what I did not see on the floors of Memorial Hospital was "thanks for saving my life." It was all in memory of. They're all dead. That's so, profound. Yeah, that's and profound. The, res- just the residents the residents themselves who are all conventional, you know, training to be conventional doctors they used to laugh. They said, "This is the grateful dead." That's how it's going at Memorial. <laughs> Believe me, that's not in the press releases. But that's what they call those those plaques, the Grateful Dead. And it's, it's very, it's funny but tragic. Uh, it's very, very tragic. You know, a celebrity dies in the hands of a conventional doctor, and people celebrate how hard the doctor worked. Like No one's criticizing Steve Jobs' doctor. In fact, they're criticizing the alternative. He, did, God, he, he ate whole grains and carrot juice for six months. That's why he died. No one's criticizing the guy to liver transplant. No one's criticizing the guy to the Whipple, none of which worked. He died. They're not criticizing them. They they get a free pass on this. I mean, celebrity after celebrity has died of cancer. You know, Michael Landon, Steve Jobs.
0: Patrick Swayze.
1: Patrick Swayze recently he was treated by the same oncologist that treated Steve Jobs.
0: God almighty.
1: Same oncologist. So he lost two major celebrities. He didn't get criticized. He gets lauded as a hero fighting this terrible disease, this noble man. The great story, uh, because I read about it in the New York Times, there's a very well-known oncologist at Sloan Kettering who specialized in breast cancer. And... Uh, he treated Linda McCartney, Paul McCartney's beloved wife who had breast cancer. And the McCartneys knew about me because one of their best friends is a successful breast cancer patient that I treated. So they knew all about me, but they got sucked into this is the best. mccarty has got guy, a guy's worth a billion dollars. He could have gone anywhere. So they went to some catering. Gave him chemo didn't work. More chemo didn't work. Then they did a bone marrow transplant. There's never been a study. I was trained to do bone marrow transplant. never been a study in the history of the world showing bone marrow transplantation works for metastatic breast cancer. Well, she got a bone marrow transplant, cost half a million dollars, whatever. She dies. Lista Barris was the editor of Vogue, famed editor of Vogue here in New York, very well known. She had ovarian cancer. Gave her chemo. It's long-caring didn't work. She went to the best of the best like celebrities do. More chemo didn't work. Then they do a bone marrow transplant. The same oncologist does a bone marrow transplant on her, and she dies. Here's two major celebrities that got a treatment that has never been shown to have any benefit either in metastatic breast or ovarian. Does he get criticized? No. The New York Times interviews him after both these celebrity patients had died, lauding him as this hero trying so desperately to help these wonderful people that are gifts to humanity, it was like they were lauding him. And they said, well, he, you know, they're dead. And he gave a therapy that didn't work. In fact, alternatives are supposedly unproven therapies. Bone marrow transplant for breast cancer, bone marrow transplant for ovarian cancer, not only are they unproven, they've been proven not to work. No criticism. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't blasted for doing that, for using a useless, unproven, expensive therapy on unsuspecting cancer patients. He was lauded as a hero. there was a major story in the New York Times about what a hero he was. Had he been an alternative doctor offering the same two women some alternative therapy, that doctor would be in jail.
0: Laura Nero, singer-songwriter, also had ovarian cancer in New York and died. Never knew about you.
1: Well, she did know about me. Oh, in fact, she did? Told me yeah, but by the time she called me, she was so advanced, she couldn't even eat. We couldn't, we couldn't possibly treat her. Um, it was too, she was too sick. She'd done all the standard things. And here's a woman. You know, she was a major songwriter. Oh, incredible. A,
0: a, incredible. Yeah,
1: um, beloved songwriter. And she was fairly young when she got the cancer. And she did like, Here again. She, she was kind of out of the, you know, the folk rock roots. So here's someone who's not conventional in her music. But when it came to cancer, it doesn't matter. Um, they marched like sheep right to Sloan Kettering. And then, she, one of her one of her good friends was a successful patient of mine with interestingly enough ovarian cancer. So she finally called me at the end, but it was too late. We couldn't help her; didn't see her. So we told her it was just too late, and she accepted it. And so that was just she was dying. How she sad! Died a, she actually died a few weeks later.
0: Oh my God, that was so sad when I heard about that. And what about Gilda Radner? Did Gilda ever call you? No.
1: Well, that was you know that was in the eighties, and that was she was very all she did was conventional. I don't think she did anything alternative at all. Um, again, here's a woman who's, you know, Saturday Night Live, this, this funky right. comedian, uh, totally outside the box. When she got cancer, she marches to the convention without thinking. You know, she's dead. So she has Gilder's Clubs to keep her memory alive. But what a tragedy. I have patients with ovarian cancer been with me 20 years and are just doing wonderfully. I mean, we don't get them all well, but most of them do great. So it's, it, it is, again, it is frustrating, the lure of convention, the lure the authority of conventional medicine. and The
0: peer pressure as well.
1: Lest your audience think that we're just crazy and ranting and raving like a couple of nutcases, most of what they do is not scientifically based. That bone marrow transplant for Linda McCartney or for Liz Barris. there's no science in the history of medicine that shows it would have worked in those situations. And they're very expensive, and they also carry mortality. 10 to 30% of patients die during the procedure. These are not simple procedures. Had an alternative practitioner offered a $500,000 therapy where 10 to 30% of patients died during the procedure that had no proof that it worked, he'd be imprisoned for fraud.
0: Clearly. But
1: Clearly. conventional doctors can do that with total, not only protection, but they get lauded and then they get donations. I'm sure Paul McCartney gave Sloan Cadyen a huge chunk of money out of, dedica- out of gratitude for their dedication to his wife.
0: In our earlier interview, you were saying something about how the immune system is not where the action is. It has to do with the pancreatic enzymes. Right. Do you remember that?
1: Yeah, totally. Talk Don't... about that. Well, I'm again. To give my, my credentials, not that credentials mean anything. No point of our conversation is credentials often mean nothing. I was trained as a conventional cancer immunologist. My mentor, Robert Good, was considered in his obituary the founder of Modern Immunology. He was president of Sloan Kettering for 10 years. So I'm trained in classical immunology in good hope that immunology would be the answer to cancer. Well, it wasn't. And um, his own, he had a, his, one of his wives died of pancreatic cancer after two months doing all the immunotherapy. It didn't really help her. Um, the immune system is, is not... The critical issue, both in the conventional alternative world, that's where all the hope is. You got to. I hear this all the time. You have to stimulate the immune system. I always say, why? And people look at me like I'm an idiot. Uh, Why? Uh, There's no evidence that that that's going to do anything. I mean, conventional oncology has been fixated on the immune system for years. I mean, Robert Good, my mentor, became president of Sloan Kettering in 1972. He was not an oncologist. He was an immunologist. Figured out what the thymus did. They thought this was the answer to cancer. Ten years later, they pushed him out because after ten years, he was no closer to finding a solution. Than he had been ten years earlier. Uh, there've been all kinds of immune boondoggles: interleukin two, interferon, all these the vaccines for melanoma. All these things are going to cure cancer. They don't. They never. They never have worked out. It's not a question of the immune system. In fact, for certain cancers like the uh, immune cancers, leukemia, lymphoma, multiple myeloma, the problem is the immune system's too active.
0: How about Hodgkin's?
1: Hodgkin's immune system's too active. Any kind of lymphoma and Hodgkin's is a type of lymphoma: lymphoma, leukemia, multiple myeloma, which is a. A type of cancer of certain lymph cells. Those are situations where the immune system is too active. Leukemia, this immune system is too active. You want to shut it off. I have patients, before they've seen me, they went to this doctor, and that doctor, conventional doctor, alternative doctor. They want to stimulate the immune system. The patients come in, and they're programmed. What are you going to do to stimulate your my immune system? I said, leukemia? What I'm going to do is shut it off, because your immune system is too active. That's what leukemia is in our world, by definition. They open their mouth and look at me like, again, like they Either they've had a revelation or they think they've seen a ghost.
0: It sounds like your ability to see is in no man's land. You're not in the traditional and you're not in the alternative. You're somewhere in between. To the other arenas, it looks like you're in no man's land.
1: Oh, that's correct. Look. A lot of alternative practitioners think I'm crazy. They think, you know, you gotta stimulate the immune system, and I don't use intravenous vitamin C and a lot of things they use. I don't think that's, that's what's gonna do it. It's pancreatic enzymes. Beard was right. Beard's, everyone who has a doubt about what I'm saying should read, read Beard's book from 1911, which we've made available. We've reprinted it. It's available now. You can get it on Amazon. He had the answer then. It was pancreatic enzymes, not the immune system, not any of these things. In fact, Billions of dollars have been spent trying to show that the manipulation of the immune system is going to be the answer to cancer, and it's totally, completely, objectively failed. It's, it's Despite the cover stories, you know, in 1986, there was a cover story in Newsweek about interleukin-2, the cure for cancer. Well, no one uses interleukin anymore because it was not only killed people, it was terribly expensive, $250,000 for six weeks. But it didn't work, except for rare cases. There were like three cases in the original group that ex- ended up actually living any amount of time. It wasn't the answer. Interferon. My boss, Good, did a lot of research on interferon. It didn't cure cancer. It doesn't cure cancer. It's not going to do that.
0: You also recommend for people who just want to maintain an optimal level of health and wellness, given the high degree of toxicity, you said 79,000 toxic chemicals are out there in the world, right?
1: Yes, 79,000. I read an article just recently about that. Yeah, it's pretty scary. It's a scary world out there. And this idea, you know, particularly with these recent studies that are attacking supplements out there, all, all of which are nonsensical, oh, we can get enough nutrition from a balanced diet. I have yet to find a so-called expert that could define a balanced diet. If you're an Eskimo, a balanced diet is nothing but fatty red meat. They didn't have fruits or vegetables. If you're a Maasai, traditional Maasai, balanced diet was raw milk, a gallon a day, and some meat and nothing else. They didn't eat Maasai, don't traditionally eat fruits and vegetables. Um, if you live in the high Andes, you're going to be drinking llama milk and eating uh, quinoa. So, What's a balanced diet? Nobody knows. The food supply is so corrupted, you can't get enough nutrition from food, even if you eat organically because the soils are depleted. I eat organically. You you have to take supplements if you want to feel well. I mean, if people want to live optimal physical lives in a terribly polluted world, they need to take supplements. They need to eat organically. They need to do all those things. If they don't want to have optimal health, they shouldn't take supplements. It's that simple. Uh, you just don't take them. I work 14-hour days. The reason I cons- I'm i outlasting my critics, three of my Big critics have now died of cancer. I will not publicly laugh about it, but maybe in my private, the privacy of my own apartment, I snicker sometimes about it. Three of my biggest critics are now dead of cancer. Tragically, unfortunately, that's too bad. Uh, I can't afford to get sick. I follow my first. Never trust a doctor that doesn't live by his rules. In my office, Doctor Isaacs and I, we live by our rules. I've done coffee enemas for thirty years. I eat organically. I do carrot juice. Uh, our home is ninety-eight percent organic. We. I take a huge batch of supplements. I work 14-hour days, seven days a week. Not because I'm crazy or obsessed. I love my work. And then we, you know, it's two of us, as you said earlier. We, you know, we don't have Sloan Kettering, Stanford, or Johns Hopkins behind us. It. It's a, the buck stops in my office. There are two of us taking care of hundreds of patients all over the world at any given time, and I have to be sharp, in control, and healthy. So I follow my program. I guarantee, if I lived the typical American diet or lived like the average doctor lives, I'd be dead. The stress is too much, the demands are too much, the workload is too high. So I follow my program, and anybody who wants optimal health needs to be on an aggressive nutritional program. You cannot maintain optimal health in this world with all the pollution, and the pollution isn't getting better. It's only getting worse. Recent episode, Japan, our friends in Japan, dumped tons. I understand millions of tons of debris are now going to wash up in Hawaii and the West Coast because the entire houses were swept into the sea. Radioactivity has been dumped into the sea. You know, my liver was not geared to handling that, so i got to use extraordinary means to, to maintain optimal health. Yes, no one should have to take supplements, and when the world is remade perfectly, none of us will have to take supplements. Until that magical point, you need to take supplements to maintain optimal health. Stress only gets worse. The nutritional quality of our food only continues to deteriorate, even if you try and live, eat sensibly and organically. Still, the quality of the foods deteriorating. And acid rain with radioactivity now falls everywhere, whether it's an organic form or not. Again, courtesy of the Japanese, there's radioactivity in the environment even up in Maine. In order to deal with that and to maintain optimal health, despite those stressors, you need to maintain a really aggressive nutritional program.
0: I'd like to give the listeners some tools. You talked about sodium alginate.
1: It's wonderful. It removes heavy metals, which is great, but it also removes radioactivity. I take it regularly. knocks out radioactivity. It's hard to find, I understand, because when I've spoken and people call our office and we can't find it, our supplement supplier has it, but they, they only sell to our patients. So you just have to go on the internet and try and find it. Sodium alginate, it's a seaweed derivative. It's used in industry, actually, as I guess a thickening agent.
0: How much do you recommend for people who are not ill?
1: Well, you know, for preventative, the thing is you should cycle on and off it because it can interfere with the absorption of certain minerals. So what we have our patients do is take three capsules three times a day away from meals five days each month. And during that five-day period, they go off their supplements. We have all our patients cycle on and off the of supplements, whether they have toenail fungus or brain cancer. So they'll do their pills like for 20 days and then go off for five. And during the five-day break, they take the alginate, and that's usually adequate five days a month. Three capsules three times a day, nine a day for five days. You just do it indefinitely every month for five days. and That usually gets rid of heavy metals very simply, non-toxically, non-aggressively, and also gets rid of radioactivity, which is not a bad thing.
0: I have another question about pancreatic enzymes. I know that now they are finally available from the company that sells them to you, and this was set up in New Zealand. Is it okay for us to take pancreatic enzymes as a preventative measure?
1: Yeah, first, um, legally, because of FDA regulations, I have to refer to it as a pancreas product. The word enzyme has certain legal connotations in the FDA lexicon. So it's a pancreas product. It does come from New Zealand. It was Developed by, uh, It is made by a process that Dr. Isaacs and I developed. New Zealand has the strictest laws for animal uh, husbandry for raising animals. We think it's the cleanest place on earth, and that's why we use New Zealand. Uh, it comes from pigs because the pig pancreas is most like ours. They're not slaughtering pigs for us. They do it for the meat industry, and normally they just throw the pancreas away and give it to the dogs. We buy the pancreases, and it's turned into this pancreas product. I think anyone should take it. I mean, ours is pork-based. If you have a terrible pork allergy, you should use lamb, which is also available. But um, I think the whole world should take it. I take about 30 capsules a day preventatively.
0: Will it interfere with anything else?
1: The only thing it interferes with is with cancer. Um, If you take too many, you might get a stomach ache. but I have patients on 100 and 110 capsules a day spread through the day, not one lump. And, um, you know, if you took a 40 or 50 at one time, you'll get a stomachache. So
0: you're recommending taking 30 a day?
1: No, I, I no, I, I lead an abnormal life. For the average person, three to five capsules with meals is, is adequate. Three to five capsules with meals as a general nutritional supportive aid.
0: And will it interfere with anything like Corella or any other type no, of... No, literally
1: the only thing I've ever seen it interfere with is cancer. Uh, it helps with absorption of other nutrients, breaks down food, they, they help break down food. I mean, that's what pancreatic enzymes in the conventional world are known to do. Um, They have this nice side effect that they kill cancer cells.
0: Sounds good to me.
1: Yeah, so in terms of side effects, only if someone had a real serious pork allergy then you want to go with a lamb, but that's about it. And if you took too many, you've got a stomachache. That's about all. Those are the the side effects. I've been doing this 24 years, thousands of patients treated. I've never really seen anything more major than that.
0: Let's talk about the FDA and the fact that supplements are in a dire threat of being removed from the marketplace and criminalized. This is very, very disconcerting.
1: People, uh, people even those interested in nutritional alternatives, even friends of mine or relatives just don't understand that the FDA has had a 30-year war against the over-the-counter availability of supplements. And I, 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 with collusion with the drug company, what they'd like to do is get them all off the market and turned into prescription items as they're being, as it's happening in Europe now. So instead of, you know, $5 for a bottle of vitamin C, it'll be $100. And it'll be free because insurance cover, we all think if it's covered by insurance, it's free. We all pay for it. So drug companies could really jack up the price, and drug companies do not like the fact that people come to see people like me, or instead of going on statins, go to their health food store. The health food store owner, who's usually very knowledgeable, tells them what to do in order to lower their cholesterol. They don't like that. They want them getting. They want everyone on medications, and they don't want supplements available. And in the last year, there's been a real concerted. I've never in my 30 years following the supplement industry that I've never seen anything so aggressive with Durbin and his endless bills. Now he wants to put riders on the bills. To basically make it so difficult for supplement manufacturers to stay in business, they will go out of business. And to have such onerous regulation, I mean, it's all, but it, it's always done for consumer protection. You know, Ben Franklin said, you know, beware of anybody that wants to help you. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. If someone says, oh, we're doing it for your benefit, you know, look for the door and start running as fast as you can. That's always a dangerous, sign, especially when a bureaucrat paid for with tax money says we want to help you. That's a warning sign you're dealing with something perverse.
0: I have to tell you something that I found out two years ago. I'm a member of the Life Extension Foundation out of Florida. I really love reading all of their research and I rely on them for my blood tests. And they had done a lot of research on avocado extract, which was formulated and when people would take this avocado extract, they were losing a ton of fat. Well, the FDA got a hold of this because one of the pharmaceutical companies wanted to patent avocado extract. So they outlawed it, would not allow the Life Extension Foundation to sell it, threaten them, and then file a patent on it.
1: Yeah, but well that's what they want to do with with. Uh, supplements. They, they did that with a form of B6, as you probably know. Uh, it
0: just happened, didn't it, like six months ago? Yeah, or... six
1: months ago. They're not stupid. These are billion-dollar companies, and they see an enormous market in supplements. But this is, you know, this is still America, still a supposedly free market competition. Beat us in the marketplace. You know, why, use, why use the government against us by taking supplements off the market? People want them. People, people are, really are helped by these supplements. Um, You know, our patients' lives depend on their availability. So we may have to have you know protests outside the FDA or whatever. You know, just like the raw milk protest that's scheduled for November first. It's just crazy out there. I mean, a lot of people don't realize the FDA has been instigating SWAT team raids on supplement companies and on that raw some foods out in California where raw milk is even legal. SWAT teams arrested people. Uh, This is happening. It's
0: so frightening. It's like the Nazis.
1: Yeah, it's like the Nazis. Uh, they're not going a- you know, aspirin kills 10,000 people a year. It's been documented. The FDA kind of yawns. Uh, no one's saying we should take aspirin off the market. Tylenol causes liver damage. That's been documented. People are dying because of Tylenol. Even at standard doses, people die from liver toxicity from Tylenol. I don't hear anyone saying Tylenol should be k- taken off the market. In fact, quite the opposite. They're constantly deregulating drugs like Prilosec, the you know, acid blocker that's now over-the-counter. Prevacid, over-the-counter. Benadryl used to be a prescription item. Now it's over-the-counter. Benadryl has a lot of side effects. Sedates. You can get into a car crash if you took it the night before to help sleep.
0: What do you recommend for headaches, by the way?
1: Well, you, you know, feverfew is quite... A, well, there are 80 reasons why you can have headaches. True. You can have headaches because they're a part of... premenstrually because your hormones, your estrogen, progesterone drop too fast. One of the most common reasons for headaches is head trauma. Uh, some prior history of head trauma. It kind of disaligns or misaligns the cervical spine bones, and the blood supply in the back of the brain is compromised, and people get headaches from that, and you have to find a good structural therapist who can normalize that. I recommend Roy Sweat, and sweat like perspiration in Atlanta, Georgia, the greatest chiropractor who ever lived and will live. He's 85 years old, still practices full-time, and hopefully he'll live, to like Moses, to at least 120. But he doesn't even use his hands. He has an instrument so precise. In my case, one adjustment has lasted 10 years. So other chiropractors hate his guts because he wants you out of the office, not to keep coming back. So many causes of headaches um, relate to, many types of headaches relate to prior history of head trauma, even in infancy. I have a patient who's had migraine headaches so bad she ended up in the hospital repeatedly over the last 30 years and began to wonder whether life was worth living. A couple of visits to Dr. Sweat, first time in her life, she's headache-free.
0: Dr. Sweat?
1: Sweat, S-W-E-A-T, Sweat, yeah. <laughs> That's
0: a great name.
1: <laughs> um, he's down in Atlanta, Georgia. And he's a, as he said, he's a country boy from the hills outside of Atlanta. Yeah, a country boy with an IQ of about 180. So he's just absolutely brilliant. He's the greatest structural therapist that I've ever met. And believe me, I've met a lot of them. He's superb. So often his technique will help headaches. Um, my wife, before we got married, she was having headaches every day. We've been married 10 years. I said, gee, do I want to marry someone who's having headaches every day? So we took her down a roy sweat. One adjustment, the headaches were gone. Wow. Like, she had headaches every day, m- gone.
0: Have you been asked a lot, Dr. Gonzalez, about your view of the hormone-cancer connection? And is it anything that you want to say anything about?
1: Um, the mythology in the alternative world is bioidentical hormones are perfectly safe. Uh, the reality is they're not, and they, it depends on the situation like anything else. One thing I will say... We use vitamins and minerals very specifically and precisely. Every patient gets an individualized protocol. You give the wrong dose of the wrong vitamin, and you can make cancer grow. The same is true with hormones, even the bioidentical hormones. I once gave a lecture about 10 years ago, a three-hour lecture on bioidentical hormones. I'm allegedly an expert in the field, and I ended the lecture with all these people in the audience wrapped listening to me talk about bioidentical hormones. And Now, having said all this for three hours, I rarely prescribe them. It's like everybody's jaw dropped. And then I went on to explain in five minutes why I don't. Usually we find if you give, I mean, people who have had a hysterectomy, you know, they're going to need some hormone support probably, but not necessarily because if you stimulate the adrenals enough, you know, the adrenals can produce estrogen and our fat cells can produce estrogen too. And when the ovaries are gone, our other organs like the adrenals and our fat Tissues can start producing a fair amount of estrogen. Suzanne
0: Summers must have really had a fit with you about this. Well,
1: she's really perplexed, but I've explained to her that on my program, I really have to rarely have to use bioidentical hormones. I I have very few patients on them, and rarely do I use them because it's not necessary. I've had I've had women patients with me now for twenty four years. And a lot of them had all kinds of chemo and hysterectomy, and very few of them are on bio. I mean, I could put on probably one hand or two hands the number of patients in my entire practice on bioidentical hormones. We just don't find it necessary. Now, in terms of their safety, you know, I've read all of John Lee's books, and I know he meant well. But How he's,
0: about Jonathan Wright?
1: Jonathan's a good friend, but I absolutely do not agree with him that these that these things do not cause cancer. Look, there's this one unconventional physician that has said that he's never – seen a case of cancer develop on bioidentical hormones. The fact is I have three of his patients who develop cancer while getting bioidentical hormones.
0: But are you sure it's not from something else?
1: No, I'm sure it's from the from the bioidentical hormones. Uh, I've, I've had, look, in my practice we see everything. I've had patients who on bioidentical hormones, tell me their cancer exploded. I've had patients that went on estriol. It's supposed to, I read all the literature. Yeah, 1976 Journal, Journal of the American Medical Association, and it has an anti cancer effect. Well, I hypothesize that it does, and certainly it's far less proliferative than estradiol. Uh, but I've had patients even there that developed. Endo- I've had two patients in my practice that develop, developed endometrial cancer while getting natural estriol.
0: I don't take any of that. I just take progesterone, natural progesterone. I've had patients
1: with pro- on progesterone where breast, ca- breast cancer exploded. Lee made the case in his early books that um, progesterone is the cure for uterine fibroids. Well, i read that stuff back in the early nineties. I put two patients on that, and their fibroids exploded. And I tried to reach Lee to talk about it, but I noticed he never, never got back. to But I noticed in the last version of his book, he had changed it. He said, well, sometimes we'll find that the, the fibroids can increase if you take progesterone. You read his first book. It's all simple. Everybody, all women in America have too much estrogen, not enough progesterone. All they need is progesterone. They don't need estrogen. Absolutely incorrect. I've had women who do need bioidentical hormones where progesterone makes them sick. Natural progesterone, all the right doses, read it all, read Wiley, all that stuff. Right. Put them on estrogen, they do better. But usually, the fact is the body is smarter than I am and is certainly smarter than Dr. Lee. You give the body the nutrients it needs for that individual patient and you do the detox, usually the hormones tend to normalize. The body knows how to normalize hormones far better than I. Your brain knows how to normalize your hormones far better than I ever will, even if I studied your body for the next 50 years. You will know how to do it through your own nervous system better than I ever will do it. What I need to do as a doctor, for example, is put people in the right direction, point them in the right direction, tell them what foods they need to eat, what foods they should avoid, what supplements they need, what supplements they don't need, and everybody's different. The supplement that works for you might make me sick. So you need to be on the right supplements, the right diet, the right... Detoxification, critically important. Why is that? Well, the liver is the body's main detoxification organ. The liver is intimately involved in regulating hormone levels. Hormones like estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, DHEA are neutralized in the liver, and the liver very astutely and intelligently knows where to keep the blood levels in each patient. And if the liver is working well, it can do that far better than I can. The key is, in our world, most of our livers are under enormous stress because of the toxic load that's in the environment, 79,000 chemicals assaulting our liver. With the detoxification routines like the enemas, the liver works better, and magically very often... So-called hormone problems like hot flashes or mood swings or insomnia improve. You know, the, the oriental physicians believed a lot of insomnia is due to liver toxicity. And I believe there's a case to that rather than hormones.
0: Very interesting. This is fascinating what you're saying. It's almost like the next generation, you know, it's the Star Trek version.
1: Well, it is. If you get the body to work better, it usually it can take care of hormones, even even in women with hysterectomies. And one of the problems, a lot of the alternative fellows, it sounds like I'm criticizing everybody, I'm just speaking from 24 years of experience in the trenches, I have patients that come in, and they, they swear by the blood levels or saliva levels. I have patients that come in, have abs- women, have absolutely no symptoms and have extremely low levels of estrogen, progesterone, DHEA. I have women with high levels and have terrible hot flashes, et cetera uh it, it every patient's different and in those patients often it's a question of getting the liver to work better so the liver more intelligently can keep the hormone levels where it should be because the liver will neutralize hormones if it's doing it too quickly because it's getting bad signals or doesn't know what it's doing you have to point it in the right direction it will st- start detoxifying them less quickly, or if it's detoxifying them uh, too slowly, you get an overload of estrogen, which, would, which accounts for some of Lee's belief that everything is too much estrogen. But the liver is working right, even in our polluted age. It can get rid of the extra hormones and keep and ma- maintain the ones that are in deficiency, but you've got to get the liver to work well. Even if the ovaries are gone, the liver can often normalize hormone levels.
0: So we all should be doing coffee enemas daily. Two pints a day organic coffee right for yeah, prevention
1: well only only if people want to have optimal health if they're not interested in that, they you know turn off this turn off the station and yawn and' do whatever. does
0: that mean you're laying in your bathroom every day or
1: yeah well, I, you know i have been doing it thirty years, so I put the coffee in in the bathroom and I go lie, sit on my couch and read so i get I do a lot of reading now, but the first couple of years we have people lie down on their left side. Do a, do a pint each time, ten minutes. Hold it. I mean, I can't rec- you know legally, medically, I can't recommend people do coffee enemas because I'm a licensed physician and you're not supposed to recommend anyone eat yogurt unless you've examined them in your office. But speaking theoretically, intellectually, and philosophically, I think the whole world should do enemas only if the whole world wants to be healthy. And people, I was once confronted at a conference by well-meaning orthodox oncologist who came to my lecture to his credit. I mean, he was willing to sit through and listen to me yab for an hour or two hours or whatever it was. But at the end, he raised his hand very very aggressively, and he kind of confrontationally said, coffee enemas are so abnormal. And I looked him right in the eye, and he expected me to defend. I said, you're absolutely right, doctor. They're totally abnormal. The problem is we live in an abnormal world. And I said, when you remake the world perfectly with no pollution, I'm going to stop doing enemas. Until that point, my liver needs help, and so does yours. Everyone kind of laughed.
0: No, it's true. It's actually very ancient. It's very modern, what you're saying, but it's also very ancient. I mean, it really validates what the Chinese have always known, doesn't it?
1: Well, in the Egyptian medical papers, they recommended coffee enema specifically. And, China, and they're in the Chinese literature. All the ancient literature recommended enemas. Most of them recommended uh, coffee enema specifically because coffee, when you take it rectally, stimulates through a reflex the liver to work more efficiently now oddly enough when you drink it it suppresses liver function there's a completely different neurological effect drinking it as opposed to rectal do you
0: have coffee in the mornings though
1: i don't drink it i never drink coffee i have no desire to do it and just makes me feel so irritable and uh, hyper i mean
0: what do you drink in the morning when you get up
1: i drink water and a tablespoon of bentonite bentonite's a liquid clay that's a detoxicant so i take a glass of water and a and, and then I make my breakfast. Now, I'm more on the meat-eating side, so I usually have some organic greens, um eggs, and some organic bacon.
0: Can you detox too much, do you think, ever?
1: Well, yeah, there was that famous Journal of the American Medical Association study from 1980, two deaths due to coffee animals, which was kind of a joke. One of these patients... <laughs> one of these, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, it was a joke. <laughs> typical, typical conventional medical... <laughs> Usually they're jokes. Um, People, again, respect them so enormously, but if you only knew the fraud that goes on in so much conventional medical publishing. Anyway, this particular article got a lot of publicity. I actually tracked down the stories and the families and all that. One of them was a woman who had a gastroenteritis, and she was throwing up and had diarrhea, and on her own started doing enemas at the rate of four or five an hour, and after 32 enemas had a grand mal seizure and died. Well, just having diarrhea and vomiting can cause electrolyte imbalance and you can have a seizure. And, of course, doing 32 enemas in an eight-hour period, that was not something I would recommend. I mean, when I was in research under Dr. Good, just to prove they were safe, I did 16 pints a day, 16 enemas a day, for a period of two weeks and monitored my electrolytes, and they stayed perfectly normal. Everyone was taking bets how long I would survive. This particular woman was throwing up and had diarrhea, so the last thing she should have done is extra enemas, although she may have died anyway. Had she not done the enemas because she was throwing up and had diarrhea, she needed to be in. a. There's one case where a hospital would have been helpful just to rehydrate. She got dehydrated and had electrolyte imbalance. So, yeah. A lot
0: of the stories that we hear are really incomplete. They don't tell all the detail.
1: Yeah, the other case in that particular article, which that article is still used 30 years later to prove coffee enemas are dangerous. The fact that, you know, 10,000 people die each year from from aspirin, no one even discusses that. It's a big yawn, so we accept that. But enemas, you know, God forbid, two people died. Well, that was the one case. The other case, which I also tracked down, was a woman with widely metastatic cancer that had failed standard therapies, went to a clinic in Mexico, was doing enemas, and died, and they tried to blame it on coffee enemas, but at the autopsy there was no ev- virtually no evidence of uh, coffee in her bloodstream because you don't absorb that much, and their electrolytes were normal. They still tried to hypothesize that the mere fact she did coffee enemas means she had to die from that, not from the metastatic cancer that was in her brain or liver and lungs. That's not what killed her. It was the coffee enemas magically that did it, even though the pathologist from Seattle who wrote the article admitted that there was no evidence of an electrolyte imbalance and there was only minimal coffee in her bloodstream. But they still tried to say, well, it's still the coffee And it just like with Steve Jobs. No one says, well, he shouldn't have done the liver transplant or the Whipple and the immunosuppressive drugs. It's the, well, it's the good nutrition he did for nine months that delayed the surgery that would have cured him, even though there's no evidence that that's the case.
0: What do you think about D3, what we're finding out about D3?
1: Um, I think it's overstated, like my bioidentical hormones. We find with our patients... I have patients coming in. I had one patient came on a 50,000 units a day, a day.
0: Wow, I've never heard of that. I've heard of 8,000 or 10,000.
1: I almost fell out of my chair. and It takes a lot to make me fall out of my chair, but I was absolutely stunned. The problem with D, it's very tricky because if you take too much D and everybody's body is different as to what's too much D, the cell receptors for D are withdrawn.
0: D or D3 because apparently they're quite different.
1: No, D3. I'm talking about D3. All right. D3, the receptors are withdrawn. So the more you take, often the worse the deficiency can get. And we find very often with patients who come in here and huge amounts of D, 5, 10, 15,000 units, they still are considered deficient. The first thing we do is we lower the dose. We go down to 2,000 units, and the deficiency often magically just resolves. Some people need more, but rarely do we go above 3,000 units a day. They're
0: finding some interesting things about it, though. It's considered the sun vitamin.
1: Well oh, I understand I understand the value of D you know we read all, I've read the literature on that I mean D is it's, it's, it's yeah it's called the sunshine vitamin it's made by the action of uh, ultraviolet light in the in the field about 290 to 350 uh, 315 in the ultraviolet B wavelengths on the skin converts cholesterol into a uh, vitamin D precursor that's processed in the liver and the kidney and ultimately you get D125 you get the active D3 uh, the problem is that conversion is very inefficient, particularly when you're over 40. It's not a very good way to make D. You, I've read, you know, you've read the articles, I've read the articles that farmers in Minnesota make 10,000 units in 15 minutes. It's
0: better to be in the sun is what you're saying.
1: Well, yeah, you, you will make some, but it's, you, after, well, after age 40, even if you're in the sun, you're not going to make it. It's not a very efficient process. There aren't a whole lot of foods That have vitamin D in it, fish does, fatty fish does, cod liver, of course, does. The standard from our grandparents was to eat cod liver oil, and there's some benefit to that. We all need D, but you don't. These doses that are being recommended are are not, you know, not something I would do. I read a wonderful article on, I think, with the Autoimmune Research Foundation site, which talked about how these doses that people are recommending are really dangerous. Now we've seen patients. Where their cancers actually, before they saw me, a lot of people come to me when they've already been through everything else, conventional and alternative, been on high dose D, and weren't doing well at all. We. What we, do you call
0: we, high dose D though?
1: Anything over four thousand units, I consider high dose.
0: Okay.
1: We reduced the dose, and they started doing better. And often their D deficiencies would improve. I've read evidence that blood levels of D above sixty, which are considered low by some, I know Canell at the Vitamin D Foundation saying everyone should be hundred. I've read studies where sixty above stimulates cancer growth. Look, all nutrients, like any drug, follow a normal distribu- normal distribution curve of activity. What that means is that very low doses or very high doses, are very, you very basically get the same problem. The idea that more is better for a supplement is no more valid than more is better for a drug. You need the right dose and the right patient in the right situation to get the right effect and that's going to vary enormously. I have patients we put on four eight hundred units a day, no more than that, and they do great. We have other patients we will go as high as four thousand, but never higher than that. And in this day and age, because even the conventional doctors are going ballistic with D, they're just loading it on to their patients. And that's the one vitamin they've kind of latched onto. We're constantly lowering doses and people get nervous. Why are you lowering the doses? Just like, why are you taking me off the bioidentical hormones? Too much D is is no better than too little D, and it's better to do it to correct a deficiency gradually because you take too much, the cells get resistant to it, even though the blood levels may be normal. It won't get into the cells, so in a cellular level, you're still deficient, and people walk around proud of their vitamin D blood levels at 80 or 90, but meanwhile, their cells are starving for D because they so overloaded their body, the cells withdrew the receptor, so the D is not getting into the cells where it belongs. So you have to. Nutrition is very tricky, just like pharmacology is very tricky. You have to use the right dose, the right form, the right time, and the right way in the right patient, and then you get you know wonderful results.
0: I think the fact that you've been doing 30 years of coffee enemas is very telling about the liver, and you're able to work 14 hours a day. And I noticed that you don't boast about it, but you have no problem sharing that. So it must be profound. Its effect. And the other thing I really liked about what you said is that the body knows. The body has its own intelligence if it's guided in the right way, correct?
1: Right. Totally correct.
0: We are the pill-popping society. So it's kind of unorthodox what you're saying, which is to trust the body.
1: One of the greatest lessons I had to learn from Dr. Kelly, who was one of the most brilliant people who ever lived and certainly one of the most brilliant people I'll ever have met, even though in his later years he went kind of nuts, he said the, the body ultimately wants to be healthy. It doesn't want to be sick. sick. Sickness is a disease. It's a disability. It's an abnormality. It's a disequilibrium. The body is always working toward equilibrium, and we do everything we can to knock it off equilibrium. And what Kelly said with his program, and we say with our program, we're trying to restore the equilibrium. And once the body is in a homeostatic equilibrium, it knows how to function well. It knows how to get rid of cancer. You know, the body can create cancer. That's quite a feat to create cancer. Well, it's certainly smart enough to get rid of it, if it's smart enough to create it, it's smart enough to get rid of it. You just have to point it in the right direction. If cancer is like any other disease; is a sign that the equilibrium in that particular patient, the physiological and biochemical equilibrium, has been disrupted. And you have to point it in the right direction. And once you do that, the diseases tend to go away, whatever they may be—toenail fungus or brain cancer. Sometimes establishing the equilibrium is difficult. It's nutritional. It's so psychological. It's it's philosophic, it's spiritual, all those things you know, play. Take, take, must be taken into account.
0: Let's talk about people gaining weight and being overweight in mid to late life who are eating less, walking, working out, but they can't keep their weight down.
1: Well, first of all, it depends on how much overweight you're talking. It's normal as we get older to gain weight. You say, well, normal is because we're accepted. No, actually we're not supposed to be as lean as we, at age 50 as we were when we were 20 it wouldn't be a healthy situation which it's we're supposed to gain some weight. There's a protective element in that. For example, in women, if you have extra fat, you'll tend to produce more estrogen and have fewer hot flashes and osteoporosis. A lot of overweight women have no problem with osteoporosis. And they say osteoporosis is a disease of very lean, small women. Yeah, very lean. They have no fat, so they're not making estrogen once they're ov- shut down. So it's, it's not that simple that fat is bad. Yeah, of course, you know, insulin resistance is a problem, and you don't want to be 60 pounds overweight. But it's not abnormal as we get older to gain weight. In fact I was just reading a study last week by a really smart researcher talking about the fact that some weight gain as we get older is actually protective in terms of a lot of diseases, even cancer. Yes, excessive weight, just like the normal distribution curve for vitamin D, the right dose for the right person, including weight. But we all want to look like we're twenty years old, but that forget it. Um that's not that's not healthy. It's not a healthy situation. There's benefit to having a little extra fat. Fat is a very metabolically active tissue. And people that are too lean, of course, as you know, have all kinds of problems. There's long-distance runners that are too lean. The women, they don't even have periods even when they're 30. So there's some benefit to having some extra weight. Yes, I mean, there are really, obesity is a separate issue when you're really grossly obese, and that's that's stressful on the heart. It leads to insulin resistance and all of that, and that needs to be dealt with, and that's because usually people eat the wrong kinds of foods. The average American eats 164 pounds of white sugar a year. That's completely abnormal and perverse. It causes all kinds of endo- endocrine disruptions. But people who are following a good diet, eating healthy food, uh, following good uh, nutritional practices and exercising, at least moderately. Usually, they will still gain some weight, but that's, that's not an abnormality, really.
0: What do you think about people that are doing these coffee enemas every day for detoxing because of the kind of world that we live in and the 79,000 toxic chemicals that are out there? What do you think about that relationship to lowering the amount of fat on our body? Does it have an effect
1: Well, there's no question people that tend to be overly toxic tend to gain weight. Uh, Suzanne and I have talked about this. I think it was in one of her books where she interviewed me about this. Fat is a storage. It's metabolically active. It's an endocrine organ we now know, but it's also a storage depot for a lot of toxic chemicals. And we live in such a toxic environment, as you and I have been discussing, our bodies can't deal with it. Our liver can't deal with it. So what the body does in its wisdom, it shunts it into storage where it's safe, puts it into fat cells. No one wants toxic chemicals in their fat cells, but at least when it's stored in the fat cells, it's not circulating. You know, it's like in, it's like on ice. It's, it's, it's protected, it's sequestered, it's away from the, the brain and the liver, and it's not circulating in the bloodstream-damaging organs. In the fat cells, it's protected. So the body, in its wisdom, faced with an... The onslaught of toxic chemicals will tend to create fat just to store chemicals. Now, as you detox, we do find this routinely. As people lose these toxic chemicals and the brain says, oh, I can relax now. I'm not being overloaded. We'll let some of this fat go because we don't need it anymore. And you know, in its own wisdom, we'll get rid of fat. We see that routinely. In fact, there are books out now about you know, the detox diet, and there's some validity to that. That when people are overloaded with toxins, the body, in desperation, will start storing it because it can't process and neutralize this junk fast enough. Especially when people are eating poor diets and taking in, you know, coloring agents and preservatives with the food as well as from the air and the water. So the, the brain, in its wisdom, will start creating fat cells to store it. That's a problem. So. It, Yeah, what I was talking about earlier is a normal weight gain in healthy people. It's to be expected. I'm not going to look the way I did when I I wouldn't want to look the way I did when I was twenty. I was too thin, but in a very toxic world, the body will create extra fat, and no matter what you do, the body, the brain is is more powerful and more knowing than any of us, any doctor, any physician, any book, and it's going to hold on to that stuff. It the brain or the body? The brain. The brain is going to hold on to that stuff. It, I mean, it's going to hold it on in the body. It's going to say, "We're not going to let this stuff circulate. We're going to keep it in the fat cells." And no matter what you do, you can cut your calories down to six hundred. If the brain thinks you're too toxic, it's not going to get rid of that fat, and it can override anything. It'll put you into a starvation mode and just slow your metabolism down in order to protect you from the onslaught of toxic chemicals. Should all that fat start coming, out. all that fat start dissolving, and all these toxic chemicals get released, you get too sick. So the brain will actually override it. That's why many people on very low-calorie diets don't lose weight. They're too toxic, and the brain shuts down metabolism to protect you. It's actually a protective mechanism to keep the toxic chemicals sequestered and stored away. On the other hand, if you start eating well and eating properly, minimize the intake of toxic chemicals as much as possible and start doing aggressive detoxification, the brain gets relaxed and says, well, we can start letting some of this fat go now. So, yeah, detoxification is very important for weight loss.
0: Where are you at regarding probiotics?
1: Probiotics are critical. I've been taking them for 30 years. You know, I grew up with the wonders of chemistry. I was on antibiotics in childhood. I had a doctor in the 1950s when I was a a very young kid who would use uh, penicillin. You'd have a sniffle. He'd come over to the house. He did house calls. Wonderful. Great guy. What an idiot. Every time we sniffled, we were getting injections of penicillin.
0: The same thing happened to me when I was young. I used to get a lot of respiratory infections, so... My whole childhood and young teenage life was on antibiotics.
1: It's amazing. It's, it's as if probiotics hadn't been discovered. And if they, they, 100 years ago, we knew what probiotics were. They're absolutely critical. There are over 300 bacteria in our gut that are normal, healthy flora that need to be there, and they help with cholesterol management, immune function. Those normal bacteria really are critical. For, they're, they're our first line of defense for, immune, for immunity.
0: And apparently probiotics are not all equal, are they?
1: Well, there's all kinds of probiotics. Well, one of the problems with probiotics is there are 300 normal flora that inhabit the gut, 300 different species. Some in the small intestine, a lot of them in the large intestine, and they work together in a kind of a synergistic operation. And what probiotic could have 300 bacteria? Can't. So I use one that has 10 different bacteria. There are increasingly better probiotics available. The ones that don't need refrigeration tend to be better than the ones that do, because the ones that do need re- re- need refrigeration, tend to be more carelessly made. If you're going to make a probiotic that doesn't require refrigeration, you have to be real careful about it and really nurture it. So they tend to be better quality. It's good to have a probiotic with a number of different bacteria. Some of the soil bacteria are important, too. We've we never even thought about the soil bacteria, but you know, our ancestors were all getting some soil. When they ate food, they, didn't, they weren't so obsessed about cleanliness and sterility. They eat dirt with the food. They get a fair amount of dirt down. And Well, that dirt turns out has a lot of healthy bacteria that really have Immune-enhancing effects can help keep cholesterol under control, and there are supplements now that have the equivalent of what we would call soil bacteria. But probiotics are critical.
0: Do you take it after you do your enema, or what's the timeline when you take that?
1: Well, with the enemas, we're only going up 12, you know, 12 inches. The intestinal tract's over 20 feet long. You're not, it's not affecting the normal flora. Just, it's the neurological reflux in the lower bowel, and the, the only thing you're cleaning out is the fecal matter and the sigmoid colon, so you're not really affecting the flora with the enemas particularly. With colonics, where you go up 6 feet, that's different. You will be washing out some beneficial bacteria, and you need to replenish that. But even though the enemas themselves aren't depleting flora, we have all our patients on a good probiotic. And I... I, t- I take I do my enemas and then I take it before I eat breakfast once a day in the morning.
0: Got it. Where are you at with regard to parasites? And for example, the work of Doctor Hulda Clark.
1: Look, I knew Hulda Clark, and I thought she was a wonderful woman. But uh, parasites, liver flukes, are not causing cancer. I mean, she, you know, I don't know why it's a big secret. She died of cancer. It didn't you know? It didn't cure. Uh, she was doing par- the big mythologies had rheumatoid arthritis no, she said myeloma. I knew her quite well. I mean, it's not a secret. People know she did.
0: I didn't
1: know that. Well, yeah, I know very few people seem to know that. Uh, it's not—it's not some deep secret. She wasn't my patient. She was—she was gonna—she she was gonna, she wasn't gonna be my patient. She was gonna cure herself with her parasite remedies. Well, it ultimately didn't work. I mean, she was eighty-two or eighty-three or whatever. I mean, so she had a long life, and I'm not being crap or critical of her. But liver flukes are not the cause of cancer. They're not the cause of cancer. If you read her first edition of the book with hundred cases, the problem I had with that is most of the cases are. Cancer cases that she she diagnosed herself with her zapper. You know, patient comes in, fatigue. Oh, they has liver cancer. Patient comes in, they have a headache. Oh, they have brain tumor, but they're not formally diagnosed with biopsies. I mean, there might have been half a dozen. I don't know. I didn't. I, I did count at one point. I don't remember what it was. Most of those hundred cases were not properly diagnosed cancer patients. They were all the Clark diagnosed cancer patients based on her frequency stuff. I mean, when I did my research into Kelly, I found patients appropriately diagnosed at major institutions. We knew they had cancer, and they were alive 5, 10, 15 years later under Kelly's care. In my book about Kelly, uh, I reviewed hundreds of his cases that were properly diagnosed with biopsies at major institutions with terminal or poor prognoses who were alive 5, 10, 15 years later, and I put that in my book One Man Alone, my review of Kelly's cases, Right. Finally published a year ago. With Hulda's book, she had 100 cases, most of which she diagnosed. That's not acceptable to me. It's not that I'm some stuffy conventional doctor, but you need to have some kind of standard. I mean, just because the psychic chiropractor says you have liver cancer doesn't convince me you have liver cancer. I, I, I'm, I'm so stupid and basic and linear. I need to see some proof before I'm going to start tre- treating somebody. Same is true with the, before, this, before I start treating someone with pancreatic cancer into the liver based on a zapper. I want to see the proof for the patient's benefit why put them through a therapy they don't need so that's those are the problems I had now in terms of her parasite remedies of course artemisin and cloves and black walnut these are traditional anti-parasite remedies but we find very few of our patients have parasites I mean I've had some patients with terrible parasites I had a UN diplomat from England who had developed terrible parasites after eating raw food at a, a dinner in Malaysia boy did she have real parasites and we treated her with herbal stuff like black walnut, and was fine. So black walnut very effective. I think parasites are a problem. I think it's overstated. Okay. Now, one of the things, having said that, it can be a problem, and if a patient has parasites that need to be treated, one of the issues with parasites, as with candida, usually means there's not enough hydrochloric acid in the body. You know, traditional peoples that, for example, that Weston Price study, they didn't have parasite medications, and they they were eating. A, Food that they hunted, or they grew locally, or harvested locally, and they didn't die of parasites. They could fight it off. You know, wild animals. If parasites were deadly, then there wouldn't be any wild animals because they're all eating, you know, rotten stuff and old flesh and plants. <laughs> you know, hold, hold, hold the clock. This is she can't defend herself, and I respect her. And she tried, and she was persecuted unnecessarily. But she thought everyone should live in a sterile environment. where you never eat raw food. Everything should be cooked because if you eat raw food, you're going to get parasites. Well, other, we're the only species of animal on earth that cooks its food. All the wild animals out there are eating raw food, and they're not all wiped out by parasites. You know, the African African herds, those uh, those wildebeests, those millions of animals, they're all eating raw food and getting parasites. And, well, why don't they aren't? Why do they all dying of parasites and getting cancer? They're not. <laughs> So it just doesn't make any sense. But one of the things is if you have enough hydrochloric acid, you will tend to kill parasites. And if you have enough hydrochloric acid in the stomach, you'll tend to kill candida. Candida and parasites cannot live in the presence of hydrochloric acid. So
0: how do we make more hydrochloric acid?
1: Well, if you have a good nutritional program, hydrochloric acid production in the stomach is a complicated physiological process. And it needs a lot of vitamins and minerals like zinc and Magnesium. If you have enough minerals and vitamins, you make a fair amount of hydrochloric acid. Yes, as Jonathan Wright says, as we get older we tend to get deficient. I take hydrochloric acid. I think anyone over forty should probably be taking some, and we put all our patients on it. But you know, most of the people I see are quite sick, so they need hydrochloric acid. Most people over forty will need some hydrochloric acid. It kills candida, kills parasites. I've had so many patients with terrible candida who have been to fifteen different doctors, conventional Alternative with terrible candida been on nystatin, ketoconazole, diflucan still have candida. We put them on hydrochloric acid. Six weeks later, it's all gone. Wow. They can't live in the presence of hydrochloric acid. It kills them. Same was true with parasites. Wild animals have natural protection. Against, yes, I know there are animals that die of parasites, and they, they do exist, of course. I understand that. And Rabbits can get tularemia and all that stuff. But, you know, the, the, the rabbit population is thriving, and they generally survive, and they usually just hydrochloric acid and gut will tend to knock it out.
0: It's such a pleasure to talk with you. You're a lot of fun. You're interesting. You're feisty. I love it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I probably. I hope I didn't do too much. I hope I didn't do too much damage.
0: No, no, not at all. I mean, it's interesting, and some of it is difficult. You can only imagine what it's like for the public. Let's finish with this: the diligent public, the committed public who's dedicated to their health and well-being and optimizing their health, really has a challenge today.
1: They have a challenge. Look, you, you read John Lee's book from t- 20 years ago. Progesterone was magic. It would get rid of fibroids, ovarian cysts, fibrocystic breast disease, protect you against breast cancer. And then I started getting patients who were taking progesterone and breast cancer exploded, and their fibroids exploded. I saw two patients in my own practice with their fibroids literally doubled in size on natural progesterone. And I said, whoa. And the problem with so many of these books out there, like Hulda with her um, parasites. approach to cancer, parasites with can- liver flukes and cancer, is that they get an idea and they present it as truth, and they tend to ignore just like the conventional doctors, anything that doesn't fit their thesis. One of the things I really respect about Kelly, he said if something works in a patient, you can be guaranteed it's not going to work in the next 100 patients. What you need to do is with each patient, figure out what they need and what they don't need, and there are no general rules. The one rule in our office, there are no general rules. I have patients we put on fatty red meat three times a day. Other people are more raw foods, vegetarian, 90 variations of diet. All their supplement protocols are different. Everybody's different. Some people need huge amounts of probiotics. Some people need minimal. Some people need a lot of hydrochloric acid. Some people minimal. Everyone's different. There are no general rules, which creates confusion. Often when I lecture, people get very frustrated because they think the information is wonderful, but then they don't know what to do in their particular situation.
0: I can relate to that just listening to you here. But there's a lot of universal things you have said. One having to do with detoxing and taking the coffee enemas. Daily, two about taking sodium alginate if we can find it. The other one about a probiotic every day, and the rest.
1: Now, having made it all very complicated, now we're going to simplify. People tend to like the foods they should be eating. The genetic meat eater hate salads, and they're forced to eat salads because they're a healthy food. And Pritikin and orner still dominate our thinking. Fat is the enemy of mankind. Nonsense. Lions and tigers eat nothing but fatty red meat, and they never die of heart disease. Eskimos traditionally ate nothing but fatty meat. fat, never died of heart disease. When they started eating Rice Krispies and Western-type foods, that's when they started getting heart disease. People tend to like the foods they should eat because they feel better. A cow wants to eat grass. A cow doesn't want to eat beef stew. A lion is not going to eat grass. I mean, on the Serengeti Plain, there's grass everywhere. You don't see lions eating grass. Yeah, sometimes they get sick. It helps with nausea. But they're basically eating raw meat. That's all they eat. People tend to like the foods they should eat because when they eat the foods they should eat, they tend to feel better. Meat eaters feel great on meat. Vegetarian patients feel better on fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, and grains. Balanced people need a variety of foods. I'm balanced, so I I do best with a variety of foods. I always crave a variety of foods. Meat eaters don't. They want meat. They want fatty meat. They want bacon for breakfast and, you know, fatty roast beef for for lunch and steak for dessert. That's what they want. They don't want fruits and veggies. They shouldn't be eating them. They should have some veggies usually then. But people tend to like the foods they should. Again, everybody likes chocolate. No, we shouldn't eat a pound of chocolate a day, but people know what I mean, within reason. The trouble is experts arrive on the scene, and they, uh, they're dictatorial, and they think everyone should be the same, and everyone, like predicate and Orner should be a vegetarian, or Atkins, everyone should be a meat eater, and... Uh, even out of Stanford, everyone should be on a balanced diet, whatever that is. Different people need different diets. The Eskimos should not be on a balanced diet. They should be eating fatty red meat and nothing else. And the traditional Eskimo never touched a fruit or a vegetable because there aren't any fruits and vegetables up in the Arctic Circle. So go by your instincts. In terms of supplements, it is tricky. One reason there are a lot of negative studies about well, a lot of the negative studies are just junk science, but... You, they, they take a population of people, you know, 10,000 people, put them all on the same dose of an isolated nutrient. That's not the way nutrients work. They work synergistically. They work together as a team, and different people need different doses, different forms. We use six different forms of uh, some of our nutrients, and it depends on the, the, the patient, which form, which dose. Well, you can experiment with that, and you can always go by how you feel. If you feel worse with a supplement, you shouldn't be on it, whatever some expert or alternative practitioner says. Go by your instincts. If you like fatty red meat and dream about bacon, you need to be on it. If you're, if you're repulsed by red meat and dream about salads and feel great after you eat a piece of fruit, you should be more on a plant-based diet. So you can go by your own instincts. It is complicated. The books out there all claim, like Lee's book or Hoda Clark's book, one answer to everything, anything that's too simple to be true isn't true.
0: It's very wise. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez. If you would like to learn more about him and pick up his books, you can go to dot gonzalezcom or you can contact his office in New York. Go ahead, doctor. Give your telephone number, please.
1: 212-213-3337. 212-213-3337.
0: It's a pleasure to be at the Frontier with you, talking with you. Thank you so much.
1: Great.